Welcome to You, Me, Empathy. A safe place for leading with your heart. Hey, thanks for being here. You, Me, Empathy is the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective, a collaborative mental health community designed to empower each of us to grow our capacity for empathy, vulnerability, and emotional wayfinding. Just a friendly reminder that this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. You can support the show by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts, following us on social media at Yumi Empathy and Feely Human, and joining the Feely Human Collective community at feelyhuman.co. And now your host, Known Wells. Hello, feely humans. Welcome to another episode of You, Me, Empathy. My name is Known Wells, and this is episode 174 on the beauty of what remains with Rabbi Steve Leader. Steve is a rabbi, and we talk a lot about death and grief and the myth of invulnerability and the immeasurable beauty and meaning in life as fleeting and finite. What that means is this life is beautiful and meaningful precisely because it ends, precisely because we die, precisely because we are fallible creatures who will end someday. We will cease living someday, and that's what that's what imbues it with meaning and beauty. We talk a lot about that. We talk about swapping out the stages of grief with waves, what Steve has learned from being at the deathbed of over 1,000 people. And uh, the title of this episode is the title of his new book, The Beauty of What Remains. I read it. It is a tome on grief and living and beauty. It's it's about beauty, truly. And it's wonderful if you've ever experienced loss in any capacity, you need to read it. If you've ever experienced beauty in any capacity, you need to read it. It's wonderful. I highly recommend it. Uh, it is linked in the show notes for this episode. Before we get to the episode, though, um, I wanted to just mention briefly that uh, I know I mentioned last intro that my sweet Scooby my dog, my best friend, is has been struggling. He's been slowing down, and I've been having a hard time with it. And I am trying to hold the truths, which is he is dying. He is on his way out, and he's given me this beautiful gift. Uh, it's 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 both things. It's both truths. Uh, this might be his last week. I don't know. Um, I am trying to honor him. I'm trying to honor us. I would probably like to do it sooner than later. And yet, you know, I, 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 I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm staying present. I'm trying to do those things. And I'm also heartbroken and so sad. And, um, I guess I just want to say, I mean, this is this is the, this is the episode to talk about death, right? He has given me so much, and uh, you have given me so much. Hold on to your loved ones, hug when you can. You know, we're still in a pandemic. Get your vaccines, get your shots, 
and uh, tell the people in your life you love them. You know, that's 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 what it is. So, um, please rate, review, subscribe to this ep- uh, to this podcast in Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. Please leave a rating and review. Please, please, please. That does truly help out the show. And I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash feelyhuman if you want to get a bonus episode per month or monthly Zoom hangs and other bonuses. You can check out patreon.com slash feelyhuman. And uh, on Friday, just this Friday, April 23rd, I'm doing a live recording of You Me Empathy, a live recording of this very podcast. And you can be there uh, over Zoom. I'm going to be recording with guest Jess Springle, who's been a guest on the show before. We're going to talk about where we're at in our eating disorder recovery. We're going to talk about what, quote, going back to normal post-pandemic looks like and answer any and all of your questions. So if you'd like to join us, it is free with an option to Venmo, either Jess or I, uh, if you'd like, but it's free. It's on April 23rd, 3 p.m. Pacific time. The link to that is in the show notes. It's also uh, linked in my bio on Instagram at Empathy. I'd love to see you there, truly. Um, April 23rd, live recording of Empathy doing it for the first time. We'll see how it goes. Should be fun. Also, lastly, um, I just wanted to say I had I, I, I did my first workshop for Feely Human uh, this past week called Illustrating Empathy, and about 10 of you were there, and it was so wonderful, and I just wanted to thank um, the folks that were there. Um, thank you. Um, Thank you for being there. Thank you for showing up. It was such a beautiful time we had together learning about empathy. And um, I'm excited to see your uh, homework um, that you're going to send. And speaking of workshops, the last thing I'll say is there is a new new workshop for Feeling Human. Uh, I, I will be hosting and it will also it will be led by my friend Janet Ellsback. Uh, Janet uh, is an author and a writer and a teacher. And the workshop is called Treasures and Talismans. Um, very excited about this one. It's next month. If you go to feelyhuman.co and go to workshops in the navigation, you'll see that Treasures and Talismans. Sign up, register. Hope to see you there. And uh, <clears throat> that's it. That's it. I'm so grateful for you. I'm grateful for you, Feely Human. I'm grateful for your big heart. I'm grateful for your vulnerability. I'm grateful for this connection we have here. And um, let's get into the episode. This is with Rabbi Steve Leader on the beauty of what remains. Welcome to You, Me, Empathy, the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective. 
On this show, we explore the struggles, the triumphs, the brights and the darks we face as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of Yumi Empathy is to talk openly, without judgment, about our mental health, our neuroses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic, and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand in hand, break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today, I am awash in beauty because I'm here with writer, senior rabbi at the Wilshire Boulevard Temple, and author of the new book, The Beauty of What Remains, How Our Greatest Fear Becomes Our Greatest Gift. It's Steve Leader. Hello, Steve. Hey, nice to be with you today. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So, so good to have you. I've never spoken with a rabbi before. Well, let's hope this doesn't hurt. It's <laughs> yes, it's going to be wonderful. So we always kick off the show, Steve, with an emotional check-in. How are you feeling? Um, a little anxious, to be honest. Yeah? A little anxious today. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure why. Uh, some mornings I wake up with a little anxiety. And, you know, that's just, I think, the nature of life now. Mm. And, and I, I try to remind myself that I'm part of this much bigger story that's going on and, uh, and it, it necessarily affects me Yeah, and that, uh, despite feeling a little anxious, it does not mean that the bottom is falling out of the world. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that. And I think a lot of us can relate to that. I, I think I know that I, especially in 2020, there's, there was some increased anxiety in the world, you know, a lot of new stuff, a lot of change, a lot of um, really sitting with stuff that we haven't sat with in, in, in our spaces before. And so to put it in the context of, of the book, I I know we're going to discuss, there have been uh, a a lot of deaths, not just physical deaths, Mm. but, We've had we've experienced the death of many things during the pandemic. Um, I think the most frightening of which is the death of our sense of invulnerability. Mm. I think we all realize now, on a on a meta level, how vulnerable we are as a species, <laughs> right? And then you <clears throat> you kind of zero in and get to a more microcosmic level of how vulnerable we are as a nation. Yeah. As a state, as a city, as a as a business, as a school, as a neighborhood, as a family, and as individuals, and I, I think it's you know there's this death of invulnerability is a big one. Um, mm. I think the loss of the most fundamental human need to hold and be held by mm. people we love. Yeah, I think. Uh, I, you know, the poet, there's a poet who said of death, it's the absence that is forever present. Mm. And I think this lack of being able to, to hug and to hold people is an absence that is forever present. I think that's part of, part of it too. Uh, and of course, people have lost money. People have lost businesses. Um, we've all lost our freedom yeah. to a major degree. Sure. Um, and, and of course, we've, many of us have lost loved ones to this yeah. terrible disease. I mean, I'm, I'm in the cemetery four or five days a week now. 
So it's very real. It, oh gosh, I mean, uh, it is very real, and I, 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 um, the the I miss, I miss hugs. <laughs> you know, like like you said, I miss hugs. I I think that it's probably. I mean, I, I, I hope like, uh, we come out of this time and we, we have a sense that invulnerability is, is not a thing that maybe it's not something we strive for. Maybe it's, maybe the, the sort of the fallibility, the yes. rich tapestry of brights and darks that we hold as humans in our heart is the thing that we cherish as opposed to like, let's right. keep pushing forward. Let's be quote unquote strong. Right. Well, yes. First of all, I think we all knew if we thought about it deeply and we deny it that invulnerability is a myth it yeah. was always always an illusion but this is true of death you mm -hmm. know in order to live there has to be some degree of denial of death now my book is an attempt to push us all through that because actually people think they're leading better lives by being in denial of death and my point is you will lead a much more meaningful and beautiful life if you embrace the reality of finitude of how mm -hmm of how finite and fleeting life really is. That, to me, is not a frightening force in my life. It's a creative, powerful, beautiful force in my life. And, and really, that's where I'm trying to take us all, uh, you know, in, in this journey. It's, I think it's a beautiful um, ethos. It's something that I believe in strongly. Uh, as someone who doesn't Fear death doesn't really ponder death, but I, I, so one of the, I read your book, uh, finished it a couple of days ago, I guess just yesterday. In fact, I love it. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's very affirming. It's very validating. Um, you said in the book, quote, death is an opportunity to reaffirm the blessing of life. Um, let's unpack that a little bit. What does that, what does that mean exactly to you? The book weaves together two narratives. One, Steve Leader, the rabbi, who is deeply experienced in the vicarious experience of death, mm -hmm. right? The craft of death. And so part of the book is a field guide. This is what I've learned. This is what we should know. This is, what's, this is what we do. This is why we do it, when we do it, how we do it. And that is is held together with this golden thread in the book, which was my journey with my father through 10 years of Alzheimer's and his death uh, two and a half years ago. Yeah. And the book is kind of, in a way, it's, it's a form of an apology because what, what I do in the book is I reassess everything I thought I knew from my first 30 years of being with a thousand families on that journey what I thought I knew and what I realized I was wrong about after I went through that journey myself, not as a rabbi, but as a son. Mm. And, and it, it is my uh, resetting of the table when it comes to death, loss, grief, and how it imbues life with, with meaning and power. So to get to your more specific question, let's unpack this idea that, that it's death that gives meaning to life. Imagine for a moment if we were deathless beings. Imagine being a deathless being. First mm -hmm. of all, it would mean being something other than human. Yeah. Vampire. And second, right? And, and secondly, 
what value would life really have? What ambition would anyone have? Why would people have children? Why would people strive for anything if we led deathless lives? Hmm. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase the poet Wallace Stevens, who said, the beauty of a flower is that it fades. That's why we're not moved by plastic flowers. No one is moved by plastic flowers. They mean (laughs) nothing to us because since they have no death, they therefore have no life, right? And, Mm -hmm. And so it seems so simple, but it's such a hard truth to, to really embrace. Uh, and, and when you do, you really start to value time, people. You know, what were the reassessments? What did the rabbi think he knew about death, but the son learned later the rabbi was wrong about? And we can get into that if you want. But yeah. um, the, the first thing was my reassessment of grief. Right. So what I used to say to people, at the cemetery before we begin the, the, the funeral. So I would, I would look them in the eyes. We'll make up a name. I would say, Susie, the most honest and helpful thing I can say to you right now is it won't always hurt so much. Then my father died. And I don't say that anymore. Now what I say is, Susie, the most honest And helpful thing I can say to you right now is it won't always hurt so often. And there's a big difference. Right. You know, I I was raised, my generation, I'm 60 years old, my generation and yours, every psychology 101 course in every university always talked about the work of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who surmised stages to death and dying and stages to grief. Mm -hmm. And in the book, I push back pretty hard on that because stages implies that grief is a linear process. Yeah. First you feel a, then you feel B, then C, then D, then E, and then it's over. Yeah. And that's just not true. So in the book, I talk about replacing this idea of stages with an, with a metaphor of waves. Grief for me, it has been, and I didn't understand this till my father died, much more like waves. They come very close together and they're very large at first. And with time, yes, they do spread out. And sometimes you even get a day, a week, a month, a year, you know, of beautiful calm seas, but then your back is turned. Hmm. And this massive rogue wave comes at you from nowhere and just, just takes you down. So to me, that's grief. And what I had to learn because of that, the change that caused in me, which has made my life better and more beautiful, is the old Steve leader before that understanding of grief, whenever there was a wave coming at me of any kind, a wave of work, a wave of anxiety, a wave of grief, right? Mm -hmm. My default setting was, I'm going to stand my ground, plant my feet, chest forward, and I'm just going to take it because I am stronger than that wave. Right. And we all know, you know, you live in Southern California. We all know what happens. <laughs> you try to stand up to a wave. Sometimes you end up thrown upside down, tossed, tossed around like you're in a, a washing machine. 
smashed against the rocks, gasping for air. You don't know which way is up. So I have found that the better way when these waves of grief or waves of loss or waves of COVID anxiety or COVID depression, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. the better way is to lie down, let it wash over you, and just, just float with it. Just float with it until you can stand up again. And maybe that's a minute, and maybe that's a day, and maybe that's a week. And it also helps to, to kind of reach out your hand <laughs> to someone who can help you stand. Yeah. And that, that was the first major reassessment. The second was about the duality of memory. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know about priests and ministers and imams, but I know about rabbis. And rabbis have all these platitudes about memory after people die. Uh, may his memory be a blessing. You know, yep. you'll always have your beautiful memories, right? We say all that. And what I learned, and this, this I learned also because of the Alzheimer's that my father suffered. So I, it was both. I really, what was revealed to me was the duality of memory. Yes, memory is beautiful. And it really, really hurts. Mm-hmm. It's both. In the book, I say it's like being caressed and spat on at the same time. <laughs> That's memory. And now, is that reconcilable? Is that resolvable? No. But, but I'm going to say something to you that's paradoxical, but true, which is recognizing a duality and making peace with the fact that it is a duality that cannot be resolved is a resolution. It is the resolution. Yeah. Right. So that was, that was the second thing. And I would say the third big thing, and then I'll be quiet and let you ask another question. The third Mm -hmm. big thing, which we kind of started with in terms of COVID is that death taught me. And I think teaches us all something, something we know, but we don't quite grasp. I, I, I call it like standing knee deep in a river and dying of thirst. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's all around us, but we don't grasp it, which is so simple, which is this. No matter how many times we say, I love you, no matter how many times we hold and are held by the people we love, it's never enough. It's mm-hmm. never enough. And these are things I never would have known without the experience of profound loss. I mean, that's why I call the book, The Beauty of What Remains. The loss strips away this nonsense, these nonsensical things. You know, I used to think a busy life was a meaningful life. Yeah. I mean, didn't we all think that before COVID? I mean, I I certainly think culturally uh, in business. Yeah. yeah, There's a lot of that. Yeah. And it's, it's a, it's a lie. Yeah. It's just a lie. You know, it's like trying to eat a picture of food. It is not going to sustain us. Right. And, and COVID has really taught a lot of us that. Um, so these are some of the really important things that turn death into a gift mm-hmm. for the living. Yeah. When I hear you speak, Steve, I, I feel like uh, one of the undercurrents of, of those three, you know, uh, things that you've learned during this time 
and in writing your book and dealing with your father's loss, is this idea that really there's a lot of beauty and wisdom and healing in allowing things to be what they are, right? You know, you allowing the wave to wash over you, you know, uh, experiencing the wave, feeling the wave, you know, relying on others, you know, um, opening your heart in that way as opposed to like, mm, I'm going to plant my feet so strong and, you know. Yeah, there's an old saying, you can't push a river upstream. Right. I right. spent, I'm 60, my dad died two and a half years ago. So I spent the first 57 and a half years of my life trying to push rivers upstream. Mm. Mm. And you talk about this in the in your book, you know, your dad being this person who, um, well, first of all, I should say, deeply sorry for your loss, you know, having to go through the loss of uh, a parent and, and especially someone to Alzheimer's is, um, yeah. that sucks. I'm sorry. They die, they die twice. Yeah. I mean, you know, when people come to see me shocked at how sad they are when their parent who had dementia for 10 years dies, they I'm so sad. I don't understand it. He's been gone for so long. Mm. And I, I say to them, people with those diseases, died twice. Right. And they get it. It's like a light goes off them. That's that's right. I had to bury him once when his mind was no longer him and now I have to bury him again. And the second one, I feel all the PTSD from the first. Right. So, right. Yeah, it's it's a tough loss for yeah. sure, but we were going to get into my dad and his personality. Yeah, you know, you you mention at one point very I think briefly, and you kind of intimate it uh, throughout the book, is that your father was someone who was was strong, was kind of, you know, I think you put it silent in his pain. You know, yeah. do you, did you find that you learned that from him? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. My, my father was uh, incredibly tough, frightening sometimes, crude hilarious, um, shameless, had an enthusiasm for food beyond any human being I've ever known in my There's life. There's so much food in this book, more food than I could have guessed. <laughs> well, my dad, my dad grew up on public assistance, uh, which right. today we call welfare. Uh, and he never as a kid, I think really had enough to eat and, and he suffered from that worry his whole life. Uh, he never really had enough money as a child. So he used to bury gold coins in the backyard under a tree mm. when I was a little kid, just in case, you know, so he had a lot of demons. I'm one of five kids. I have three older sisters and a younger brother. So I was the firstborn son. And my father claimed me at a very young age as his, I would, my mother's non-existent in the book for that reason. Uh, because my father claimed me as his. And he started me on a path of workaholism at about age five. He and my uncle owned a junkyard in Minneapolis. And it, I might be off by a year or two, but not, not much. I was five, six, seven years old. And I went to work at the junkyard, scrubbing floors and toilets on my hands and knees. Mm. Uh, and I did that every summer and I did it every Saturday. And that was my life. And in my father's cosmology, if you weren't working, you were useless. Yeah, Everything but work was useless. So 
That's why I was always pushing rivers upstream. And here's the crazy thing. I could. Hmm. I did. But at what price? Right. At what cost? And that, it took his death for me to start asking those deeper questions. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, you being um, someone who is a rabbi, you're there for people in their toughest moments, right? You know, I, I wonder for you, like how, you know, sort of Steve before this, you know, before your father died and Steve after, how things will change in terms of how you show up for people emotionally you know like because i i know for myself like i am i am i'm a recovering people pleaser i'm someone who gives all of myself and i i'm 40 i've had to learn to create boundaries i've had to learn to like you know set up emotional boundaries and stuff in areas where like i can still nourish myself but also be there for people like how has that been for you um i think i'm better i know i'm better at helping people now than I was before. There's a new frequency on my radio dial back when radio dials had frequencies. I can dial into a different frequency now with people. Mm. I can, I can empathize differently. I can stand up at a funeral and look out at someone and say, we'll pick on Susie again. (laughs) Uh, Susie, Jimmy, Dave, as a son who lost his father two and a half years ago, I can make you a very beautiful promise right now. I promise you, you're going to discover your father in so many powerful, meaningful, and beautiful ways every day for the rest of your lives. He's with you and you will be with him. And so I can speak with a degree of authority that I never would have done at 40. Look, I don't think I did a bad job at 40. Yeah. You know, maybe an A minus, but I'm I'm definitely at a different level now, and and that's part of what compelled me to write the book. Because let me tell you something: there is nothing fun about writing a book. There is not <laughs> one fun thing about writing a book. It's fun to sell it. It's fun to promote it. It's fun having written, right? Not the writing. Yes. Yeah. There is nothing fun about writing a book. But I felt compelled to because I felt I had been catapulted to a different level as a as a, a hu- as a caregiver for others, mm-hmm. and I wanted to articulate it all because I can only see so many people in my office or on Zoom. Yeah, uh, and and that's really why I wrote it, uh, and and I, it seems to be helping an awful lot of people, which is obviously really gratifying. Yeah, but I'm different. I can speak with greater authority. I have more empathy. Um, I can, I can now confidently look people in the eye when they ask me, you know, two months later and say, I'm so sad. Is anything, is something wrong with me? I can look people in the eye and say, there is no wrong way to grieve. Yeah. There's only your way and it is non-linear. It's ebb and flow up and down in and out. And around that's grief you're you i tell people here's the good news and the bad news you're normal yeah yeah you're human i I think i have a yes i have a different level of insight and confidence Mm. uh and 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 far less judgment yeah i'm one of five and we all 
you know, we were all literally raised under the same roof, but metaphorically, we were each raised under a different roof. Mm. I relate all to siblings, that. All siblings are, were, no two siblings are raised under the same roof. Mm. And so I'm much less judgmental now about how families grieve, you know, and the other thing that really became solidified for me, I knew it before, but I lived it after my father died, is this idea I talk about in the book in a chapter called, uh, you know, in, in death as in life, then that people face death exactly the way they face life. People die exactly the way they live. Families face death exactly the way they face life. Um, the German poet Heinrich Heine had a joke about the Jews. He said, the Jews are like everyone else, just more so. <laughs> just, just such a great, yeah. great line. I mean, you could say it about a lot. Of, you could say it about the French, the Italians. You could say it about every, every subculture, right? Yep. Death doesn't give anyone a new personality. It just makes everyone and everything more so. And knowing that going in is really helpful. It yeah. really manages expectations in a very healthy and good way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, and maybe I'm wrong, but like, I feel like we have that perception about death because like, it becomes this like built up thing in our minds that this like it's it's the thing we're anxiously anticipating. It's the thing that like yeah. is inevitable. Like what is it gonna mean? It's you know, it's it's this yeah. like we build it up as this huge thing. And when and it comes, we, yeah. It's nothing. Right. Right. It's nothing. Yeah. It's a, it's it's worth worrying about as much as worrying about where were you before you were born. Right. Right. I, I will tell you, th this is something that all the um, journalists, you know, on the talk shows when I, for, uh, during the book tour have asked me about because they don't believe it. In the book, I mentioned that I've been at the bedside of about a thousand dying people. And that's not an exaggeration. And I always and by dying, I mean actively dying yeah. hours, hours or a day or two. And I always ask, are you afraid? And 100% of the time, the answer is no. When you are really dying, you will not be afraid because it is as natural a thing as anything else we do as humans. You know, the, the closest thing I can compare it to, you know, the problem is we, we can't be 100% sure because you have to die to really figure it out and you can't come back. But the closest thing I can compare it to is imagine when you have felt the worst jet lag in your entire life. You're a zombie. Sure. Just, you're just pure weight, right? <laughs> All you want to do is crawl into bed in the dark and pull the covers up and go to sleep. You're not anxious about sleeping. You're not depressed about sleeping. You know, it's the most natural thing in the world. It is what your body and your soul need to do. That's death. Yeah. Now, of course, there are exceptions. People get hit by cars and, and have massive strokes or massive heart attacks, right? People do die suddenly. Most people do not die suddenly. They do not. Right. There's a trajectory. And that trajectory 
carries you along and it carries the living along and prepares them as well, right? My father's 10-year trajectory with Alzheimer's weaned all of us from him. Right. And we were ready. Right. And he was ready. And he died peacefully in the middle of the night in his sleep. Uh, so, you know, the dying are not afraid. Now, here's the good news, since this is a show that deals with anxiety and mental health. This enables me to look people in the eye who come to me and express fear of death. And I can say to them, here's some good news. If you're afraid of dying, it's not your day. Because when you're really dying, you won't be afraid. Right. Anxiety is for the living. You're fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's true. It's true. Yeah, that makes that makes sense to me. I I I you know, I saw that that you said that like the vast majority of people aren't afraid of of dying when they're in active dying mode and and that makes sense to me. I I I understand that and and at the same time I wonder if cuz you're, you know, presumably uh, you know, at the bedside of people in the Jewish faith? I guess that's a question. Yes. Yes, mostly, but not exclusively, because okay. we have many of our, many of my temple, my congregants have non-Jewish spouses. Yeah. Okay. Because I was, I was wondering, like, I wonder if uh, religion plays a role in that. Well, yes and no. I think what religion does is creates a kind of vessel to contain the moment. Mm -hmm. But, but there are many rituals for that. I mean, just as, by the way, I should be clear. It's not that the dying don't don't sometimes have fears, but they're not for themselves. Right. Are the kids going to be okay? Yep. Are they going to take care of mom? Those kinds of things, which is why you have to gather around that bed. And this isn't Jewish or Christian or Muslim. I always encourage the family. Let's, let's circle around her bed. Let's hold hands and let's each take a turn mm. and bless her, offer her a blessing. And it's so beautiful and so healing and it's permission granted, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that's not particularly Jewish. You don't, you know, but I do think there's a role for ritual. I yeah. don't think it has to be overly specific. Sure. Sure. Unless it's meaningful to the dying. Right. So for example, there's a prayer that you're supposed to say as you're dying. It's called the Shema in Hebrew for knowledgeable Jews, for whom that's meaningful, I'll hold your hand and say, Eddie, let's say the Shema. And he knows what that means. And I know what that means. And it's, and it's beautiful and powerful. But for someone for whom that would never resonate, let's hold hands and offer a blessing. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of ways to do it. Let's yeah. light a candle. Let, there are many ways to do it. Yeah. It, it seems to me that like there is, I mean, there's, there is thinking about the person who is, is dying and is, is there on their deathbed and is, is allowing for it to be what it is, is, is accepting of their current state, you know, is accepting of well, their. It's, it's even better than that. I'll tell you why. Yeah, please. Be well, I'll just put it a little bluntly. I look the family in the eye and I say, the disease is in charge. Mm. The disease has its own rhythm and power. And we are along for the ride. 
the disease is in charge. And that is such a calming way of thinking about it for people because it relieves them of guilt. It relieves them of feeling like frenetically they have to do something, change something, fix something. You know, the moment you realize the disease is in charge, it's going to bring us all to our knees. It's a different um, atmosphere. The barometric pressure changes in the room. Yeah. And sometimes I have to say that to people who are earlier in the process with their loved one who's dying. When they're so worried, I'm not ready, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. And I can say to them, let me, let me say something to you that is really important for you to grasp and that you don't feel yet. The disease has its own rhythm and power and trajectory, and it will carry you along. The disease will prepare you. You're not ready today because he's not dying today. And his quality of life is such that it's really quality of life. Mm -hmm. But the disease will prepare you. Just walk this path with him. Hold his hand and be there. And that makes sense to people. And it's the truth. And that feels like the wisdom we need to find far before we're ready to die, right? Isn't that like the point of this book? Or maybe one of the gleanings? Well, certainly, it certainly is one of the main points, is that death is as natural a thing as anything else. And, you know, you can't can't force feed a kid to make them grow up faster. You know, you can't. You can't slow down aging. You can't fight gravity. So people do have a context to make peace with the inevitable. And if you can just get death into that context for them, Mm -hmm. it's not quite so um, frightening and you don't feel quite so singled out um, or surprised. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I really enjoyed and I found very fascinating and made me think about my own family was you mentioned something in the book about like dysfunctional in life, dysfunctional in death, meaning like, exactly. That's, you know, things aren't going to be magically like, you know, come together and it's going to be beautiful and perfect. Right. Like I, I appreciated that, that so many people call me and say, Steve, I've had a terrible relationship with my mother, my whole life but she's just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. She's got three to six months to live. I'm flying back to New York to be with her. And I'm sure finally it's going to be beautiful and we're going to have a a really meaningful time together. And, you know, inside I'm thinking to myself, no, you're not, (laughs) but I don't quite put it that way. What I usually say is I hope that's true but I want to prepare you for something that I have found to be true more often, which is that dysfunction in life doesn't change because someone's dying because people tend to die the same way they live. Yeah. So I just want you prepared for the reality, more likely reality that your mother is still going to be cold and withholding and want to talk about the weather (laughs) and you need to be prepared for that. Now, this is where let's go a little deeper if we may. Yeah. Now, this there's a small percentage of people where we have to go even deeper to a deeper truth that most people just 
refuse to talk about. And those conversations go something like this. Steve, my mother has been a horrible mother my whole life. Every time I engage, she hurts me. She's a narcissist. And I haven't talked, I haven't spoken to her in three years. And before that, only maybe on her birthday. But I'm going to go back to New York because she's dying and I don't want to feel terrible after she dies. Mm. That I didn't try. To which I say, let me say something to you that's blunt and true. You're not going to regret it when she dies. You're going to be relieved. Yeah. When there's a person who is toxic in your life, when that person dies, generally speaking, it's not regret. It's relief that people feel. And no one wants to say it. But it is deeply true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love I love that. I love that you say that because there's we romanticize these things. We we canonize people, it's, it's right? Hollywood. It's Hollywood. Yeah. It's yeah. It, it's not true. And yeah. and but let's flip this over and look at the good side, right? Yep. The good side, of course, is if you have this big, whole, juicy, beautiful relationship with someone in life, you're gonna have the same relationship with them when they're dying. And this too is very important. You know, another thing I learned from my father's death is how phony people can be when they are trying to console you. (laughs) And, And it is the opposite of what I needed. Okay. So when my father died, the last thing I needed was for my friends to walk in my front door with this, with this phony long face and this whispered, Oh, Steve, I'm so, I'm so sorry for what you're going. Oh, so that's not what I needed. What mourners need when you approach them, they need you to be exactly with them in death, who you were with them in life, right? Mm. If you're a joker, joke. If you're a feeder, feed. If you're a hugger, hug. If you're a a errand doer, do errands, okay? Whatever it is, be authentic. Just walk in the door and be authentic because that is the thing that assures the mourners that the bottom hasn't fallen out of the world. Yeah, the foundation's still there. Yeah, my friends are still my friends. He's still laughing. He's still inappropriate. He's still hilarious. Yeah. He still brought Corby from Langer's. Oh my God, you know, <laughs> that that's what you need. It's, yeah. it's, it's life affirming. Don't put on a bad acting job when you go to console someone who's mourning or someone who's dying. I tell yeah. a lot of jokes. I almost always leave a dying person's hospital room with my new favorite joke. Always. Because <laughs> that's what I... That's me. Yeah. That's yeah. me. And yeah. and why not? Why not? You no. Know? So I think that's a very another really important point about authenticity. Mm-hmm. Authenticity mm-hmm. is always the way to go when you are dealing with loss. We we need people to be who they are, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Here's a fun question. How so you're you're still a spring chicken 
<laughs> rabbi. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm a, I'm a chicken. I don't know. You're, okay, you're a chicken. Uh, <laughs> do you like? I I know like you know in reading your book, like I know that like you're not languorously pondering on these things necessarily, but like I want to ask the question anyways. How would you like your final days to be? I hope without pain. And I hope with enough cognition to really enjoy the people I love being around me. Yeah. Um, and to give them some beautiful last memories mm. and to comfort them with the knowledge that I'm not afraid yeah. and I'm okay and they're going to be okay. So I guess I would like my final days to be very much like I want every day to be. Mm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, I think you're, you, at some point in the book, you said, uh, your dad had said there is always room. There's always money for books, which I just like took a moment as I was reading that. And I was like, yes, I love this man. <laughs> yeah. What are you, uh, what books? I mean, I know you're like, you just finished a book. What books have you enjoyed recently? Uh, or read within the last couple of years that you've enjoyed? Um, well, I've been working on this book for two years, so I haven't done a ton of reading for pleasure. I do yeah. a lot of reading for work. Sure. Um, but believe it or not, I've been, I've been digging into uh, the second world war, Winston Churchill's six volume set of the second world war, just because Oof. it's, it's so fascinating, mm. you know, and, and, and so define the world as we know it today, hmm. you know, I, you know, and, and I was born only 15 years after the end of the war. Right. So the war was, was dominant in my childhood milieu, you know? Yeah. Um, and my, my family was in the scrap business. And so that was connected, you know, um, because they were engaged in getting recycling metal to build tanks and planes and ships. Mm, wow. Um, so it, and, and I just think I'm fascinated by Churchill I'm fascinated by the, by the idea that had we treated Europe, particularly Germany, differently after World War One, we probably would have avoided World War Two, mm. which is a great lesson in not rubbing someone's nose in it. Um, <laughs> you know, um, but anyway, anyway, so I've, I'm I'm like slowly clawing my way through that, and lately I've been reading um, a lot of Leonard Cohen poetry. Oh, nice. Yeah. I'm a big yeah. fan. I even use one of his poems uh, in the book. Yeah. Um, if it be thy will. There's mm -hmm. a lot of music in the book. Yeah. Uh, because music was was one of the ways my father communicated his affection for us. Mm. He would sing. Um, you know, as I said, he was pretty harsh guy. But on on occasional Sundays, my mom and dad would pile the five of us in the blue Chevy station wagon. And we would go for a Sunday drive and my dad would sing songs. Uh, how much is that doggy in the window? <laughs> Hang down your head, Tom Dooley. Um, and then he would sing. This is still hard for me to talk about. Uh, he would sing, you are my sunshine to the five of us. And it was one of those rare moments in my childhood when I remember knowing, really knowing that he really loved us. Mm. That's lovely. And, and so 
you know, there are, I, I was, I was working on the fourth chapter of the book in Palm Springs in the middle of the summer when it's 115 degrees. So I was in my, my sister's house was empty and I, she gave it to me for a month. So I would stay in this dark, cold house all day working on this chapter, the chapter on assisted suicide. Mm -hmm. And then when it got late and it was only 90, <laughs> I would go out for a walk every night. And the first time I walked around the golf course at the Mesquite Country Club, it's a golf course I'd walked around with my dad a thousand times in my youth because they had a condo there where they would go in the winter from Minnesota. Mm -hmm. So I'm walking around that golf course and I look up, I'm missing my dad. I'm deep in the funk of writing the book. And I see a big sign hanging from the back porch of one of the houses on the golf course. And it's the lyrics to you are my sunshine. And I just thought, wow, there he is. And I text my siblings a picture of the sign. And my brother texts me back the lyrics to Hank Williams, I'm so lonesome I could cry, <laughs> which was another of my father's favorite songs. And then my sister texts text us all a sketch. She said, I couldn't sleep tonight. And I drew this and it was a picture of my dad. And I just thought, whoever doesn't believe in the afterlife of the soul hasn't taken this walk. Hmm. Hmm. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I, uh, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. And I, I love that. Um, I love that art and music and, and, and books can be these resonant things of reminding us of, of the beauty of, of the beauty that remains right. Of, yes. of the beauty of the people that touched us, uh, while they were alive, you know, all of it, it's, um, uh, it's lovely. It's, it's everything. Yeah. It's everything. You know, yeah. this idea of the beauty of, the, of what remains, I actually took the idea from, um, there's a, a theology called via negationis, mm. which is Latin. It means by way of the negative. And in theological terms, it means we can understand what God is by first deciding what God is not. God sure. is not cruel. God is not capricious. God is, God is non-corporeal right? Yeah. Well, I think that this is also what death does to us for life. It strips away nonsense mm -hmm. and leaves something very beautiful behind. You know, if you think about the most beautiful marble statue or sculpture you've ever seen in your life, it began as a solid block of marble and that beauty was always within it, but it took a very skilled sculptor to remove the right pieces. Right. To, lead, to, to reveal that beauty that was always there hiding in plain sight. And to me, this is what death does. It strips away so much in order for us to see what really, truly matters. Think about headstones. You know, I spent a lot of time in cemeteries. I'm always amazed by the almost complete uniformity of inscriptions on headstones in cemeteries. We're all unique individuals but they almost all say exactly the same thing because when, when they give you 15 characters per line and four lines to distill a person's life, <laughs> that's, 
down to that, you yeah. are engaged in a really powerful form of essentialism. And what do they all say? Loving husband, father, grandfather, friend. Loving wife, mother, grandmother, friend, right? right. Not, your, not your zip code, not, not where your grandchildren went to college, not your net worth, not all the crap you collected in your life that nobody wants when you're dead. None of it. Yep. It comes down to this tiny handful. And do any of us really have more than a tiny handful of people who matter? Really? And, and that's the powerful force that death has to reveal the essence of life and what matters. It certainly has done that for me. Yeah. 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 I mean, I talk about I talk about connection endlessly on this show and how we grow in connection with others and it's it's everything. Last night my wife Jessica and I watched the movie Judas and the Black Messiah. Oh, I saw the promo for it yesterday, but I haven't seen it yet. It's uh it's it's heartbreaking, uh, but very, very worth seeing and and Fred Hampton, you know, the former leader of the Black Panther Party, uh, always said power to the people, right? It's, it's, it's about the people, right? It's not about uh, really anything else. It's about like what we give each other, uh, how we connect, how we uh, glean and find perspective and healing through one another. That's it. That's it. And yep. that's why headstones are so terse. Yep. Because that's yep. all that really matters anyway. Yep. Yep. Well, Rabbi Steve, um, I know you only have a few minutes, so let's talk about empathy heroes. We always kind of wrap up the show talking about the people in our lives, could be even characters from stories we love, uh, who are deeply empathetic, compassionate people. I'll go first to give you a moment okay. to think about yours. Yeah. My empathy hero this week is uh, a new friend I met, uh, Sarah Crossley, who has a podcast called Kinda Okay, and she is sweet. She lives up in Canada. Um, is a very talented illustrator and we had a chat recently on her podcast and it was um it was one of those chats where i just felt like immediately i was like this is my people right it was just like we're heart to heart we're vulnerable we're sharing our mental health stories it was very beautiful and i i'm just grateful you know at 40 you know you don't uh i mean as an adult, you just don't meet new people, really, especially in the time of COVID. So I was just grateful to meet Sarah, and uh, that's why she's my empathy hero this week. That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, mine is a guy I've known for a long time, but he taught me a very important thing about empathy. Uh, his name is Abe Wagner. He lives in Denver, and um, he does a lot of writing and, and teaching about um, transactional analysis uh, and and empathy. And what he taught me is when I'm dealing with any person who is angry, the first thing I need to figure out is a way to help that person know I understand. Mm. And I would be no different if I felt the same way. And that has reframed and taken the sting out of hundreds, maybe thousands of conversations I've had to have as a rabbi, because I'm not just the rabbi of some small community. It's, it's a massive three campus synagogue, 2,700 families. So it's also a, a business of sorts. And yeah. we don't always get it right. And people get angry 
And Abe is the one who taught me to say, you know what? I wouldn't like it either if I thought my rabbi didn't care about my emails. Mm. I get it. I would feel exactly the same way. Yeah. And it's, again, one of those very simple things, but it was not my default setting before I met Abe. <laughs> and uh, he really, I brought him down to train our whole staff. Mm. He really has helped me and an awful lot of people. So Abe is my my empathy hero, and I hope he I hope he hears this podcast. Oh, that's lovely. I love that. Yeah, what a beautiful uh, shift in the narrative. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, well, Steve, uh, where can the listeners out there connect with you and and read your book? Uh, the book is available at local bookstores, also on Amazon. Um, it's back in stock. They they didn't have any for a while, but now they do. Um, again, it's called The Beauty of What Remains, and you can get it on Amazon. And the best way to engage with me, I spend most, I don't really get engaged on social media other than Instagram, because they're all too complicated for me, except for Instagram. So, uh, Steve underscore leader, at Steve underscore leader, L-E-D-E-R. And... Uh, you can reach me on, on Instagram and follow me there. Wonderful. Well, Steve, thank you so much for being a part of Yumi Empathy. You're welcome. I really, really enjoyed it. And Likewise. I will tell you uh, what you're doing is, is very important. Keep it up. Well, same to you, my friend. And to you listeners, as I always say, I'm here, you're here, we're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, inspiring pale blue dot. We have each other. It's Yumi Empathy. Oh